You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. All great leadership comes from a value-centered place. So if you know your values and you understand what you stand for, you, you have a foundation by which to project yourself in a very different way. So no matter what comes at you, you can always rely on those values to make sense of it as well as to articulate your views. And so the first thing that you would work with, with any leader or candidate that was trying to present themselves in a larger forum is, how well do you know what you stand for and how clear are those, is that value set? And that's way before you ever get to the actual delivery and, and, the, and the prep and so forth and so on. And so the good news is for most people at that level, not all, but most people level, they kind of, they may not know themselves as much, but they know their values and they know what they stand for. I can't tell you how many leaders I've worked with in my career who they, they believe that they stand for so many different things, all good things too, by the way, but they don't have a core or a significant, you know, what some people call a true north, um, a, a foundational set of values, one or two or three things that drive most of their decisions and that help them articulate their views and help them defend themselves 
when they feel like they're in indefensible spots. And when you have the ability to come back to those values, it really matters. This next guest is the secret ingredient behind the success of hundreds of billionaires, CEOs, hedge fund managers. When I found out who he was working for and advising, it blew my mind. Like this guy is behind the scenes of the behind the scenes. And I wanted his insight. What's he telling all the world leaders and business leaders that he gives advice to in this harrowing time that we're living in. So here we go. Meet Randall Stutman on today's podcast. So Randall, I'll introduce you. You're an esteemed and admired coach to CEOs, leaders all around the world billionaire hedge fund managers, golf pros, because you're a former collegiate golfer. You've written books about leadership. You have uh, the Admired Leadership Institute and another company, CRA, which is a, a leadership consulting company with many clients all around the world that you've helped through this crisis. You've helped them build multi-billion dollar businesses. I, I saw in your bio, you know, your, your expertise on leadership has even brought you to the White House. So let's say I was a presidential candidate and I was going to have a debate and let's say I was super knowledgeable about all the issues. So that wasn't an issue uh, in terms of my preparation. Right. What advice would you give me as a strategy for the debate? Well, well, gosh, we could really get into this. Um, I mean, it's just so many different things to work on. Are you saying I'm a wreck? <laughs> no, not at all. But it, you know, there's just a lot of things to think about um, and a lot of things. So, so the first thing is, listen, all great leadership, and, and much of great presentation comes from a value-centered place. So if you know your values and you understand what you stand for, you, you have a foundation by which to project yourself in a very different way. So no matter what comes at you, you can always rely on those values to make sense of it as well as to articulate your views. And, and so the first thing that you would work with, with any leader or candidate that was trying to present themselves in a larger forum is, how well do you know what you stand for and how clear are those is that value set and that's way before you ever get to the actual delivery and and the and the prep and so forth and so on and so the good news is for most people at that level not all but most people level they kind of they may not know themselves as much but they know their values they know what they stand for um, i think um, at least it was in that case um, but that's something that would be a grounding for me. So if you didn't have a strong sense of what you believed and what you stood for and what was important, that was uh, timeless for you, I mean, not about any public opinion poll or about what's going on contemporarily, you're going to have a hard time um, uh, being the kind of authentic uh, leader and presenter that I'd want you to be because we, we, you would have no core foundation to start with. Like, so that would just be a... a like table stakes for me, but it's very important table stakes because I can't tell you how many leaders I've worked with in my career who they, they believe that they stand for so many different things, all good things too, by the way, but they don't have a core or a significant, you know, what some people call a true North, um, a, a foundational set of values, one or two or three things 
that drive most of their decisions and that help them articulate their views and help them defend themselves when they feel like they're, they're in indefensible spots. And when you have the ability to come back to those values, it really matters. So that's something that you'd start with. Past that, I mean, there's just so many things we could get into in terms of prepping people for, you know, debates or public forums and the like. Um, uh, I mean, I'm not even sure if you want to spend all the time there, I'd be happy to, but there's a lot of stuff to get into. Yeah. Like, I'm just curious, not having ever been really in a professional debate, like, are there one or two things? Like, should you, should you try to defend positions if attacked? Should you try to convince people, um, which has its pros and cons? Like when you're convincing someone, you're giving them the status of, you know, hey, you're worthy of being convinced, so I need to convince you. Uh, so I just, I'm just curious, you know, what, what are the, what are a few nuances? What are some important things to remember? Is it important to have, like you're saying about values? Should I translate that into a so-called media message? So no matter what the question is, I pull, I fall back on my media message. I mean, what, or again, what are just a couple, one or two things to remember? I, and this is just out of my curiosity because I'm always fascinated by strategy during these debates. Right. So, so the one thing that you'd want to know is what's the core message that you want to attach most of your responses to. So what's the primary message? And it's not just a media, media message. It's, it's of all the things that you remember from what we're going to, what we're going to engage around and so forth. What do you want people to remember the most? And, and basically it has to be singular, right? So whoever said, you know, some people say it was Fred Smith. Other people said, whoever said the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. That's true for lots of things, but it's particularly true for debates. So, so we have to agree as to what the core message is because that's something you're going to hammer and come back to. You're going to answer that in, in questions that maybe have nothing to do with it, but you're going you're gonna to repeat it, you're going to be redundant about it, and you're going to circle back to it in multiple cases because when people remember you after a debate, they remember two primary things. Number one, they remember stylistically who you were. And they either remember the one thing that you were able to drive the stake in the ground or they don't. And the majority of times we don't because there's too many points, too many issues that come up, too many kinds of, of ideas. And the best debaters are the ones that really drive a, a single idea farther and deeper than other people. So they always come back to it. So that would be one. Um, another one is you want to project enough confidence, and there's all kinds of ways of projecting confidence. Um, the majority of us think of confidence as largely projected nonverbally in the way that we smile in the way that we gesture, uh, our head nods, uh, a lot of our um, intonation, which uh, is part of nonverbal, our pitch, um, and the like. And, and those are all important things, eye contact and the like. But, but actually, when, when you look at, and, and I actually studied um, mediated presentations, what you find is that it, it's language that carries the most of the, of the cues for whether you're really confident and know what you're talking about. Like one of the more fascinating pieces of research, so that you know, is this confidence accuracy fallacy, which is the idea that even in objective reference, if in fact um, I am highly confident, you'll come to believe me more likely, even if, if there's no reason for me to, to be that confident or to be that knowledgeable. So the stylistic way by which I present myself really matters for how people believe each other. So that means you want to have a high level of confidence and you want to project that confidence in almost any answer, any question, in almost all your articulation. And so what I coach people around, if I'm in that environment, is 
how do you uh, display the markers of confidence so that um, everybody can feel and see that without you going so far as to be uh, appearing to be arrogant or, or having what I call the Titanic effect, where, where, where people start to doubt you because you're, you're overconfident. And the majority of that comes from language. So let me give you a couple of examples just while you're curious, okay? And hopefully we'll talk about other stuff here. Yeah. Um, so so how, how vivid you are really matters. So when I, when I say to you, I went to the store and I picked up some, some soup, well, that, that's, that's nice. But if I say I went to the Safeway and I happen to be looking for my favorite tomato bisque, which is made by um, this particular uh, uh, company called Progresso, and I just love that soup because when you heat it and it gets really hot, it just tastes differently than most other canned soup. That, there's a vividness in that that is more believable that I actually went to the store and got soup. So what you're going to find is that when I can be highly vivid in certain moments, not completely, not all the time, but when I can show people how to be around what to be vivid around, it actually projects a higher level of confidence. When you were actually up the tree on the limb watching, you know, the crowd, when, when you explain that experience, when you're going to be naturally vivid, when you really know, when you really were there, when you really had that experience. And so that's something that when we hear other people be vivid in the same ways, we naturally presume more accuracy or more believability about what they say. Now I could tell you, I could show you 10 other markers of confidence, um, equally as interesting as vividness. And so when I coach somebody in that arena, and I haven't done it that much, I used to do it a lot when, in early in my career, um, but I'm gonna focus on naturally, what, wh where are they naturally? H how vivid are they? Where, wh what's the level of intensity or emotional laden words that they use? What are some of the, the qualifiers and generalizations that are natural expressions to them? And, so, and then I'm gonna assess where are they relative to that level of confidence? Do I even need to play stylistically with their confidence? Or when they get cornered or surprised as their confidence go down? And what are some of the ways that without knowing any content, I can show them how to project a higher level of confidence and be more believable just stylistically? And so most people that do this work focus on the nonverbal and that's important stuff. Um, eye contacts and facial expressions and, and shrugs and gestures and, and, and the like, and, and especially intonations and, and the way you end sentences, whether it's rising inflection, all those things matter. Um, but most of us know that stuff. What most, most people who coach people for a living don't know is that there's markers of confidence that are language oriented that are actually carry more meaning in them. And that if you get those right, you can alter how believable or how um, authentic people sound when they communicate. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, it totally makes sense. And and yes, definitely we're gonna move on quickly to other things, but this is actually an important topic because as we move into this so-called new normal, remote meetings, Zoom meetings, whatever, are gonna be commonplace and language is gonna become much more critical than just uh, you're, you're not going to have the physical presence in front of people to communicate as much non-verbally. So, so the importance of verbal is going to increase. I couldn't agree more really. So I don't know, just one more example. So vividness is one and, and I'll, I'll equate that with like in the example you gave, you kind of had the arc of the hero. The call to action is I need soup. And then the hero's journey goes to the store, compares different brands, 
you know, he, he has ever increasing problems and figuring it out. And then he comes back and yep. eats his soup. And so that, so vividness is also another way of saying, you know, have the, the arc of a story, even in a, a small answer, but what's a, what's another, uh, language related thing. Uh, something that's well known in, in the language literature called lexical diversity, which is how can you describe the same thing in multiple ways? So most of us grow up learning that if we write, whether it be emails or other kinds of documents, we don't use the same words over and over again. But in natural speech, it's much more common to do so. And what you'll find is as lexical, lexical diversity decreases, so is the projection of confidence. But when lexical diversity increases, confidence is perceived to be much higher and then that whole believability thing goes up. So let's just take the example of, of using the word, a simple word like problem. So I could say to you, I have a problem. I'm really focused on this problem. I need to fix this problem. This is a problem that's keeping me up at night. Or I could be more lexically diverse than that because there's no diversity in that one example. And I could say, I have this problem. It's a big challenge for me. Um, it, it's somewhat of a riddle. I haven't, you know, a conundrum. I haven't, I haven't resolved it. And, and thinking about the issues that are embedded in it of keeping me up at night. There's a huge difference between the lexical diversity of the first one and the second one. And while I'm not advocating, I just made that up off the top of my head. Um, when you teach people how to be more lexical diverse, or lexically diverse around the issues, words, phrases that they knew, use a lot in a given presentation, talk, and the like, it actually enables people to process them differently, but in particular, it projects a higher level of confidence and understanding. And so, and some leaders just don't know that. You know, that, that's fascinating because it goes against what I would think of as common sense, actually, because, you know, you look at like the famous examples of speeches in history, you know, like uh, Winston Churchill, you know, we will fight on the, you know, he repeats the same phrase over and over again. And yes, it's called parallelism, you know, to fight on land, on this, on that, on it's the on yeah. over and over repetitive. That's the parallelism, definitely a rhetorical act and, and very strong language wise. Um, and probably projects high levels of confidence um, also. But that you, you can't do that very often. I mean, th those parallelisms, right. I see. You, know, you, you, you would use those once in a great while. We remember them in great speeches, but in natural speech, that would be a very unusual thing to do unless you were making a very um, embellished point. And that's exactly why you see them in famous speeches. They are embellished points. And But also though, when I think of like, um, kind of the values say of, of different candidates. And, and this is neither for nor against, we're just talking uh, technique and strategy. Mm -hmm. But like, when I think of Andrew Yang, I think of the word automation. When I think of Trump, I think of the word immigration, at least in terms of debates. And so they must've repeated those words mm -hmm. a lot, but maybe you, I guess they didn't repeat lots of words. They would just repeat that one word. Yeah. Well, that's a little difference because that word becomes uh, an issue. Um, that is, that's, that's the point. So though that kind of repetition is not a problem, I see. but if you start talking about making change, which we often do as leaders, or, or you start talking about strengths, uh, of performance, like how many different ways can you say strength? Lots. Um, how many ways can you talk about happiness? I mean, you can talk about thrilled, ecstatic, exuberant, joyful. And, and if you choose to use the word happy over and over again, um, people start to tune you out and don't process you nearly directly and your confidence and markers go down. So it's not one-sided. It's not like everything needs to be lexically diverse. And you can certainly understand why people would hone in on, on specific words repeatedly because that is the primary issue that they want to talk about, like your example of immigration and Trump. Um, but, but 
how, in the ways that you would articulate that, you would need to be lexically diverse if you wanted to be at the highest level of confidence and get people to process you in a way that they find favorable. Just as an example. Yeah, no, that's great. And again, this is not stuff that I normally do in a debate format or something like that. I mean, I can't imagine. Right. I can't so remember the last time I talk about confidence markers, but um, you know, it's in it's in my head. It's just it's it's a fascinating topic, and so I do want to talk about you know lots of different things, but you've been advising basically some of the most important people in the country, in the economy, like I mentioned before, billionaires, CEOs, investors, leaders, and so on. Uh, I, I guess there's, there's two topics around that. Like a, what are you seeing, uh, as we move into kind of America 2.0 for lack of a better phrase, even if, or if that is a, a, a phrase and B, how are you, what sort of coaching do people need now and how are you doing it? So I guess I'll start with the first, which is, what are you seeing? Like, is, is the world over? Are the leaders scared? The billionaires? So, so let me go backwards again about your question first. I mean, so my point of view, and I say this to lots of leaders, is leadership is leadership is leadership. And it, it's not a whole lot different in, in crisis and or in in pandemic than it is normally. We, we, we attend to it more now because we think it's, it's required and necessary. And it is because people are looking to leaders for reassurance and for their own personal safety and self-confidence. But, but the, what the, what the basis of what it means to lead um, isn't very different. And so um, I, I use this point to say, you know, how refreshing it is that a lot of leaders are stepping up and saying, well, I really need to be present and visible and, and out there right now. And my response would be, you needed to always. Um, you needed to a year ago. Um, you just didn't have anything um, pushing you forward in that way. You would have been a whole lot better if you had treated it uh, last year in the same way that you're treating it right now. So, so my first opening to you would be, um, you know, this, there's not a lot of difference between the, the need to lead now than there, than there ever has been. Nonetheless, there's a lot more interest and, and there is, from a constituency standpoint, people depending on leadership more than they ever have because there's a lack of clarity, there's ambiguity, uh, there's an unsafetyness uh, in all of this, um, uh, and people are worried and, and the like. And so when I talk to leaders, first of all, they're absolutely surprised, James, at how much they've been able to get done virtually in their organizations. They had no idea that their teams and their organizations could run as well virtually as they have been doing. And, and when I say surprise, that's, it's an understatement. I mean, they are, they are amazed and, and, and absolutely aghast at, that, they, that they haven't been more virtual in the past. Um, and they now know in the future, it doesn't mean that they need less people or, or that they won't need to be face-to-face -face or they're going to you know, disband their organizations. But they know there's a lot of work and meaningful work that can get done virtually. And that's been a big blessing and learning for everybody I've worked with. Um, so that's number one. Number two is the cadence by which they're being present because they're in a virtual environment is much, much higher and it's paying great dividends. The majority of senior leaders that I deal with, which is quite a few right now, um, uh, in many different industries, um, they have a weekly or, or, or every other week cadence with their entire team or divisions of people. And, um, and that level of clarity has always been needed, but now... And now it's happening, and, and it'll be interesting to see what happens to that cadence after this, this time period goes away. But um, it's, it's a really important piece, and, and it's exactly what people need. They need to hear 
um, optimism. And so I'm coaching a lot of people around how, how, how to have optimistic themes that they push over and over again without being unrealistic about the, the future. And, um, and in particular, they're, they're, uh, I'm, I'm working with people to say, okay, um, keep the cadence alive. It's hard to fill even 10, 15 minutes with everyone every week, but people need it um, desperately because they want clarity and the world's changing and the news is changing, the facts are changing on an ongoing basis. So we're learning that and I'm seeing that. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that are, are busier than they've ever been and other people that, um, well, they're not on vacation, but they're definitely not working as hard as when they work in the offices and the like. And so, so th- th- there's a lot of struggle over um, what is everybody doing and, and how are we holding people accountable and, and um, you know, what are the standards by which we're going to engage each other. And so there's a lot of negotiation going on in organizations around, you know, how do we have that honest conversation where we've got some, some people here that are, you know, when, what's, the, what's the line? When you work from home, you're always working that are working 24 seven and that seem, you know, are overwhelmed by this virtual world we've now created for them because they're never off versus a, a, a another portion of people that, you know, maybe are, are slightly engaged and are waiting for this, waiting this out. And so that inequity hasn't been dealt with yet, but organizations are starting to deal with it. And I'm, I'm offering some advice around that. Um, you know, gosh, there's so many things that, that are, that are happening um, in these organizations right now, but I don't see any doomsday. I mean, I have a couple of hedge funds that are not doing well that, you know, we'll see if they survive, but um, uh, I don't see a lot of doomsday. Um, now, it might be that some of my particular clients, uh, they come from pharmaceuticals. I've got a few manufacturing CEOs that are having a rough time because they do a lot of their manufacturing in China. Um, their plants have been shut down for a long period of time. Um, their stock prices are way down. Their boards, though, are very confident um, that this will, will recover. They're being really good about um, caring about safety of people before they're caring about revenues and things of that nature. They're cutting costs like you would expect them to cut, um, but not, not too deeply yet. So I'm not seeing a lot of panic, um, not at least with the corporate leaders I'm dealing with. Um, uh, not what you, what you might expect. I, I, I mean, I would expect to see a little more panic than I'm seeing, and I'm only seeing it in a couple of very isolated spots. Well, let me ask you about some of the things you just said. So first off, just to clarify, when you say weekly cadence, like a weekly meeting or virtual meeting of some sort or check-in with, via phone or whatever, what, 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 cadence just means an interaction. Yeah, so Zoom calls, team calls, audio calls where they're involving, in some cases, the entire organization, in other cases, pieces of the organization, and they do it repetitively. So that people are hearing from the senior leader or senior leaders uh, on a weekly or every other week basis, not just around um, what's, what's the, our response to uh, the COVID, but, but also just generally what's going on, how financially strong are we, what, are, what strategies going on, what are we worried about, what are we happy about, what are we seeing about the future, when are we going to come back together, what have we decided to do about our fall meeting, those kinds of things. And, and usually there's level mes- messages of optimism, uh, there's messages around some level of strategy, there's usually some tactical shout outs for people. Um, and those are happening with a high level of cadence and, and they're very productive for these organizations because people really crave social connectivity, but more than that, they crave clarity and, and they hate, they don't tolerate ambiguity. Large populations of people do just not tolerate 
in, in a, a lack of clarity uh, around anything, but especially their financial well-beings. Sure. So, so these things are really helping a lot. And, and you know, you, you said that um, these leaders should have even been doing this earlier, not just showing up when there's a crisis. And yet earlier and presumably later, there will be more clarity just in general in society and for the business. Do leaders need to keep stepping it up even when there is that clarity? Yeah, I think, you know, listen, I wouldn't argue for a weekly town hall or an all hands meeting or whatever metaphor people use for these things. Um, there, 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 there are many different uh, descriptions, but, but for example, um, you know, the best organizations I've ever been a part of are pretty much on a quarterly basis where they get everybody together and they talk strategy and they do Q and A. And, and, and it's actually in the question and answer that really matters. And in a culture that's not used to Q and A, you won't get many questions. So you actually have to force them, plant them in some way, encourage them in other organizations where there's a lot more safety and a lot more comfort, you'll do this, but, but, but even on a quarterly basis, um, I wonder if we shouldn't have a, a little higher cadence than even that with, within certain groups. And so, so, so after this is all said and done, we're, we're no, no organization is going to do all hands or, 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 or town halls every week or even every other week. That, that, that's not a good use of time and energy. But, but cadence is cadence, and it needs to be more frequently. And I can tell you there's many organizations that I go into that I haven't been before where they never do them. They, they never bring the whole organization together or whole divisions or whole teams of people never have a chance to ask questions or engage the senior leaders. And while it's become more prevalent in the last few years, 10 years, decade or so, and I've been doing this a long time, um, it still doesn't have the cadence it probably should have in good times. So, I mean, it, what's, what's great also about you is not only this you know, expertise in, in coaching at these very high levels, but because you're coaching so many people across different industries that have impact on the world, you get to see, uh, you have a unique kind of global perspective on this. How are you feeling going forward about, you know, society's chances for either, let's say on the one hand, complete and total recovery, we're better off than we ever were. And on the other hand, complete, you know, Mad Max anarchy. <laughs> Where are we in that scale? Well, I'm 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 a general optimist, and and uh, and and you know I grew up in a family that believed in America, and and I believe in 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 the, in the ingenuity of 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 people that have been born and raised here, in particular, but but of of everybody. I think the human spirit is tremendously resilient. Um, I'm going to be surprised if yeah there are going to be social uh, norms that change. We, we may never shake hands again. Um, we, you know, we, we may never do certain things. All right. Right. But, but I don't believe that we will be able to sustain very long, not coming back to some level of normalcy. We'll see what happens economically. It might take a while to recover the full economy. Um, but I'm optimistic that as long as, as we're not learning anything new about um, COVID that we don't, that we don't suspect right now, that there will be a time, uh, certainly early by early next year, if not well before, where there's a lot more normalcy than people expect. I mean, now that may be me just being uh, rose-colored uh, and you know cheery and optimistic, but I actually believe that deeply. That um, people just can't stand um, um, being out of the flow and, and unconnected for very long. They're gonna they're gonna force some of this. Um, it may have some some negative consequences. It may not, but I'm optimistic that we'll get back to normal uh, faster than most people think. 
And I, I agree with you because, uh, you know, on the one hand, we're still in the middle of it. And, I, and here I am, I'm in the middle of New York City. So just going outside, you, you would think everybody is already dead, you know, based on the media headlines. But at the same time, you know, we did have the United States and the world had an incredibly strong economy going into this. And it wouldn't be strong if it simply blew up in two months of lockdown. And so although it feels bad still because nobody is, you know, nobody's open here and everybody's indoors and so on and so on, when it's over, I kind of think that, you know, the strength that we had before has to have some impact on what, you know, what happens next. It's, it's not like we, we weren't really that strong if it was so easy to, to blow us up. I agree. I think that's right. Listen, there are going to be some businesses and some roles that go away, maybe for a very long time, or at least are altered. Um, and, and we, you know, that that's unfortunate. And um, uh, restaurants may never be exactly the same, um, at least for a while. Um, uh, and, and that while may very much put some restaurants under and, and the like. And there'll be other sub places like that, that um, f- feel the ill effects for longer. But but restaurants are not the whole economy. And um, we have lots of manufacturing and lots of services and so forth that will come back and rebound strongly. And so um, it's just a matter of when. We'll, we'll see how long uh, this all plays out. Um, schools really have a big impact on this, in my view. I don't know what you think about that, but the longer kids are in, and both uh, young kids as well as college uh, age uh, students are out of school, it has a tremendously negative impact on the economy. Um, not just on learning, but, but on what's happening in, in the like, what, what, why is that? Like why, uh, I can understand with younger kids because right. the parents can't go to work or they can't be as productive, but why college age students? Well, think about this. I mean, you know, the majority of colleges, uh, in the country, um, not the overwhelming majority, but a lot of them are basically in towns and cities and in areas that are primarily focused on that college. Um, what happens when the 30, 40,000 kids aren't there for seven, eight months at a shop? I mean, they haven't been there since March. And what happens if the fall semester is entirely canceled? Um, I do remember the story about a small college town that was debating with the, uh, the town council about how much of an impact their, their economics were on the town. And uh, the council was unconvinced. And so the college decided to pay everybody, all their employees and all their students, in $2 bills back when they existed. And that made the point really fast. Um, these colleges have tremendous commerce relative. So if, if you're in Miami of Ohio, or you're in Oxford, Mississippi, or if you are in Logan, Utah, or if you're in Chico, California, and you don't have any of those students there for periods of six, seven months, it has to decimate um, pieces of that economy and not just restaurants. And so I think that's one of the reasons that colleges if they choose to stay out f- until until next year, we'll, we'll actually have somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy around what happens economically in those in those places, not not in general. Great. So so I, I agree with you that, um, again, a lot of college towns depend on the colleges around them. And but at the same time now, we're starting to see different trends that are getting accelerated. One is the declining importance of college in credentialing for jobs, which is a reason many kids are willing to spend the tuitions for college. Uh, you know, and that's among other trends that are being accelerated, accelerated right now. And, and 
I, I don't, you know, there's nothing we can do about those trends. They're either going to, they're either going to happen or, or not, but that does seem like another trend that's was already ongoing, but it's just being accelerated by this period. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, uh, but listen, people always um, presume things uh, and project out into the future of things that aren't going to happen. Um, um, there may be less of an interest uh, in some cases around the, the value of a, of a college education. And then what will happen is college education and the way it gets done will change in order to, to modify itself to, to that level of consumer demand. Um, it just takes colleges like governments change really slowly. Um, but, you know, they, they need the resources and the revenue and like any other uh, uh, business, profit or nonprofit in order to exist. So they'll simply modify themselves over time. Listen, I, James, I, I was a professor for a long time. And I remember when I first was a professor um, back in the early 80s, uh, the prediction was that they would just tape all my lectures and then there would be no need for me. Um, and there were a lot of people convinced that that was the way college was going to go. Um, people always underestimate face-to-face -face interaction. They always underestimate group dialogue. They always underestimate the kinds of things we learn relationally when we're in the presence of other people. And, they, and those people that underestimate that project things that um, are not going to happen. Um, so colleges uh, may go away. I, I can't, I'm no college expert. Um, uh, education may change drastically. But what I do know is there will be a lot more virtual digital work than ever. Um, th that's obvious. Um, that colleges need to change in order to meet the demands of the constituents and the consumers, uh, call it students, um, especially at that price point. Um, and that um, there's still going to be a need to actually meet each other face-to-face -face occasionally in order to, to transfer certain kinds of meanings. Um, you know, the, the, the weirdest part of being a professor once was learning and realizing that students are the only consumers on the face of the planet that each year demand less and less for their dollar. You know, if I canceled the final exam, they would all cheer. And, and, and if you were really a true consumer, you would say, no, no, I paid for that final exam. I want to know where I am. Um, students won't be the driving force. The economy will be the driving force around who we hire, how we select students, those kinds of things. Students would love to get a degree and not show up. Um, not all of them, but, you know, generally speaking. And so, so this will be driven in, in multiple different ways. Um, but I'm no, I'm no expert. You know, I, I read the Chronicle of Higher Education still, but, but it, that's all I do. And so I'm, I'm no professor, and I don't think like that anymore, um, thankfully, by the way. And, um, uh, and I, I don't argue over whether we're using number two or number three pencils. And, um, and I'm more practical about that. But, um, you know, education is not my deal. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who 
basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle, and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours, and they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So... I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast and the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. The UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. 
At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. When these CEOs and other types of leaders and hedge fund managers and so on call you during this period, what are they going to you for? What are they asking you for? Normal advice. I mean, listen, when you operate like I do as an advisor and executive coach, um, so I'm doing, I'm doing multiple things, right? So one is um, I'm bringing feedback to leaders. And so I'm talking to other people in their organization. And, and, you know, the more senior you get in any organization, the more filtered everything is that, you get, that gets to you. So you get less and less of the truth the more senior you get. And when you're a CEO or somebody that's a founder of a firm uh, or has the, the principal investment in the firm, um, people tell you what you want to hear a whole lot more. So one of the, one of the functions that a, an advisor and executive coach serves is, is to bring a little more truth. Not, not all truth, not, and truth with a small T, not a, not a big T, but you bring truth to the table. So I talk a lot about what I'm hearing and what I'm, I'm seeing and observing inside organizations because I talk to lots of people. Um, second thing that I'm doing is um, I'm, I'm advising them around the issues that they face, whether it be team issues, key relationships, uh, board of directors, um, uh, other kinds of things. I, I don't get in the, I'm not a business coach. I'm not uh, a management consultant in the traditional sense. So I'm not somebody that offers advice around decisions being made or strategy, um, but how to articulate that strategy and how to deal with the, with the complex relationships that surround the everyday decision-making. Like I'll teach leaders how to make better decisions that I can do um, without being um, specific to a given decision. Um, so it, a lot of it's relationship, a lot of it's motivation, some of it's about performance and giving feedback. So we're, I'm always engaged in that level of advisory and everybody's issues are different. And then third is there's the issue of succession. Um, so people aren't going to stay in roles forever. We have to groom other people. Sometimes I groom them. Um, they have other people they have to promote. Sometimes we need to assess whether they're ready to take that next leap or whether they can stretch into that spot. So I'm doing, you know, all three of those things and some more um, on an ongoing basis in most of my calls and in my face-to-faces when I'm able to have them. I haven't had them for a while. Um, and, um, and so it's normal stuff. Well, what's an example of uh, there's someone you're going to groom and they need to, uh, you know, take it to the next level. What might that level be and how does an already, you know, successful person, executive, leader, whatever, how do they take the steps to get to that next level? Like what, what's a type of yeah, okay. thing that, that they're missing? So, so that's the real, that's one of the real functions that an executive advisor coach serves, James. I mean, it, it, it no, no one, what, what's the, the old line is that no doctor can operate on themselves. So, so first of all, you can't see who you are and what you are and how other people are seeing you. Um, you normally have a board of directors. No one's prepared you to deal with that, that board. Um, there is no CEO school that tells you uh, exactly how you're supposed to act or engage as a CEO. Even if you've been around uh, a handful of good ones, your, your sample size is really small. You've had experience with two or three or four other people, whereas somebody like me has had experience with 500 plus CEOs. And so I can tell you what things work and what things don't work and what, what, what's normal, what isn't normal and the like. But, but primarily when you're coaching someone or grooming someone to take the top job, and I'm, I'm just speaking about CEOs right now, um, there, there are a lot of things that they need to know that they can't get any place other than from a third party that with a lot of experience and knowledge. 
Um, there's no school to go to. There's no, you know, now they can do it by having lots of conversations with, with peers and the like, but even then it takes a really long time. So, so an example of a topic would be symbolism. So the more senior you are as a leader, the more symbolic everything you do um, is. People overinterpret and overanalyze almost everything that you do and everything that you say. So when you show up as the new CEO, whatever client, whatever customer you base you go see first, everybody in the organization says that's now the most important client or most customer, important customer base. When it may only been a function of your calendar that put it on there. You happen to be visiting that town, and so you want to see that client. And in the process of that, though, the overinterpretation, overanalysis of your everyday actions, where you park, what you say, where do you enter the building, who do you, how many assistants do you have, you know, what every single thing that you do becomes symbolic and people draw very large inferences from very small and everyday actions. And if you understand that, it's not about manipulating that or controlling that, it's being respectful of it and understanding that your priorities and the way that you engage in the symbolism of your uh, leadership um, has a big impact on how well you're going to be received and how well people will perform for you. I was just going to bring up as a very specific example that when Michael Eisner, the first day he took over as CEO of Disney, I don't know, back in the early 90s or late 80s, whenever it was, uh, one of the first things he does was he went to Disneyland and picked up some trash that was lying on the ground. And that was very symbolic uh, that, you know, keeping with the, the vision of Walt Disney from from 50 years earlier, uh, uh, you know, about the, the cleanliness and, and purity almost of, of Disneyland and the Disney brands. Absolutely. And that's a great, great story. But, but what, what you have to impress upon leaders is it's not just the big acts or the big symbolic acts. It's almost all the acts. It's almost all the choices. Um, when people call you, how do they access you? Can they, are you available or, or, or do they have to go through your assistant? What is your assistant's message? What is almost every single act becomes symbolic. Now you don't want people to be paralyzed by that or to overthink it, but you want people to be appreciative and respectful of it and not to step their, put their foot in a bucket around it. And I could give you dozens of examples uh, of, of that. Um, one of my favorite ones is I, I groomed a CEO once, became the CEO after I'd been working with him a while, really had a hard time with the symbolism thing. He happened to have, it was a gentleman, he happened to have his board uh, during one of the board meetings in town over for dinner. And he, he was very proud of his personal closet. So he showed uh, the entire board his closet. And the board was aghast because the closet was as big as most of their probably bedrooms. He had invested in So it smacked of ego. It smacked of vanity. Um, uh, they all wanted to see where his wife's closet was. And when they found it, it was much smaller. So it smacked of inequality. I mean, and so they walked away with this really horrible feeling about this guy who wanted to be proud of showing them something he built in his house. And he, he just lacked, and he, he was generally unaware, uh, and lacked self-awareness to begin with, but he didn't understand the level of symbolism that that would, would create. And the inferences they drew, and, and by the way, he, he didn't last for more than a year longer, and almost every single thing that came up after that referred back to his ego and his vanity and so forth. So it, it took on a life of its own. Um, that is, is not a common story. Um, uh, I, I, by the way, I don't have many CEOs that have large closets, just so that you know, but, um, that's a funny one in my view. <laughs> well, also the idea that his closet was bigger than his <laughs> wife's, right? I have one shelf in my closet yep. and yep. the rest, the other 99% is my wife. 
And but what's what's a reverse example where someone stepped in and even surprised you how they good they were at the symbolism part? Well, you know, there's there's lots of great examples of that too. Uh, you know, uh, I think one of them that comes right to mind is I have a leader that I worked with. She's she's really spectacular. She has great instincts and and the like. And and when she took the role, the first symbolic thing she did was she went and brought in almost all the infrastructure people, all the back office people, and she met with them first. And she wanted to hear their view of the organization before anyone else, before the revenue people, before the engineers, before the 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 the, the front office and the and the customer client facing people. And what she was saying was, and descending the message loud and clear that everybody matters, and in fact they matter equally to her. And it was hugely a symbolic win because no one had ever done that. The, the prior CEOs that had taken those roles had never even met with the senior leaders one-on-one in the infrastructure side of that business. They met with them in large groups. And, and so, uh, so fascinating how little simple things like that um, can set priority and set tone. And that was a great example. So, um, you know, again, as we're going through this, everyone is is has been dealing with so much. I mean, there's kind of the, the PTSD of, of the health crisis and the fear. There's the, the, the lockdown and the anxiety that that's created the economic insecurity. You mentioned before, you know, how one important thing for, for leaders, but I think it applies to everyone is coming up with these core values. And when I was thinking of it, as you were saying it, like, yes, there's sort of, everybody could say their values are, you know, family and, being a good person, being kind, like these are common values that are, that are important to many people. But I sort of feel like it's rare to have, you know, important core values outside of those basics. You know, like you might say, you know, like for instance, Elon Musk might say, well, you know, you know, having an electric car, I firmly believe is going to improve society, you know, and, and move us to a greener planet and, you know, design on top of that is, is, is important. So people get attracted for multiple reasons to having an electric car, you know, so he could have sort of core values around his industry. But I, again, I think it's very rare. Like what sort of core values should people be thinking about right now? Or how does one develop those values? Well, well first of all, they need to, yeah, yeah, they need to have they have to have been developed over a lot of years, especially if you're a seasoned leader. Um, but but you know it's it's interesting how it is that um, the majority of the really special and, and values that can really drive decisions are not the, the the mom and apple pie, honesty, integrity, you know, kinds of things. Not that people don't stand for those too. But and I don't know Elon Musk. I've never even been in a room with him, which is kind of actually unusual, um, given where I go. But um, um, if I was projecting from what I can gather and listening to him on a variety of things and, and the like, I would tell you that um, making decisions based on, on what really is smart, like he, he values smart. He values the right answer. He values the best answer. I'm going to guess that he, he, he really, when he thinks you're smart, he treats you very differently. Um, and, and smart to him is, is analytically deep. Linear, linear and lateral thinking because he's a creative thinker. So, so his definition of smart is probably a little broader than, than most of ours. So he probably values people that are hugely rational, but also that are creative in the way that they come at things, not in traditional things. Now I'm projecting, but when you know that somebody has that value and they're able to use that so that, so that when, for example, when, you, when, he, when he hires somebody, 
my guess is if he's involved in the recruiting process at all of senior leaders, and I hope he is, that, that he's probably more attending to, to whether he thinks they're smart than anything else. That's a value. Now, there's not, that's not a right answer. There's not a right value. Um, but that's a value that, that things can cohere around. And, and, so, and there's values around whether relationships really matter, whether, um, uh, whether it's really about work and energy. Do you have the energy that I want you to have? Because energy really matters to me, as an example. Now, that sounds like a strange value, but it isn't in some leadership worlds. And, and so it's not always that I value um, teams and, and people and, and integrity and fairness. Those are, those are fine values, and you can drive decisions around them, but they're a little harder. You need to get more granular than that. And most people stand for those things or stand for deeper things. They just don't know what they are. Um, being respectful um, is a deep value that I have several leaders that I work with hold. That it really matters for them that the organization be respectful, that they're respectful, that their teams are respectful with each other, that they respect their customers. And so it's not driving commerce, but that value is one of the core values that they use to build culture and to create. And that's, not, that's a little different of a take than um, what you and I would think about in terms of integrity. Um, respectfulness is really different. Well, t- tell me what you mean by respectful. So, so again, respectfulness is how do we engage one another? Um, are, we, are we, in fact, um, deferring to each other's expertise? That's a sign of respect. Um, another version of that is, um, stylistically, are you somebody that's, that has an even tone and an even temperament that doesn't, even, even if you're excited, that you don't project that to other people because that's disrespectful? Um, would you ever tell an off-color joke or something that would be prejudicial? Well, that wouldn't be respectful. So that wouldn't be tolerated at all in a highly respect for a highly respectful leader. So that's a that so so imagine the difference between as a leader saying I value respect and it 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 can play out and be um, exemplified in so many different ways and I'm going to stand for this value and push it as hard as I can personally and professionally and culturally. And so instead of talking about um, what we can't do, we talk about what we should do. And that's what the value of a, a, or that's what the power of value is. And so respectful is just one example, but I, I, you know, and there's not a lot of, I haven't, I've just happened to be a few, be around a few leaders that, that, that focus on that one. Um, But it's interesting how many uh, leaders that if I tell them about a respectful value, they go, that, that sounds so much more powerful than what I try to, to ground myself in. And then I'll say, well, but don't start there. It's got to start with you. It's got to be authentic to you. It's got to be something that really matters and that you've held a long time. But let's talk about how to narrow it and make it more powerful in its action by creating clarity around it. And that's really what happens. So respectful is just one. Um, I could give you lots of others, um, but they're not the traditional. I mean, a lot too many people think that when you, they talk to leaders and they hold values, that there are some mission vision statement that would be on some wall. You know that we, we you know we stand for the client and uh, and we care deeply about our employees and those are important stuff by the way I'm not making less of them but those are not the critical values that I would want somebody to lead and make decisions and recruit and explain themselves inside a large organization as in a highly symbolic way I'd want them to be more granular than that and push them down to a point of what do you really stand for what really matters to you and let's decide what that is and use it as a way to help inform decision-making and make it so that you can present more clarity, make it so that when you make an unpopular decision, people use that value to interpret why you did that. 
so that that value becomes a stronger piece. And by the way, I'm, 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 this is not what I'm known for. There's lots of people that have written about values. Um, Bill George, uh, the former Medtronic CEO, wrote a wonderful book called True North a um, decade ago. Um, uh, I coach around this idea, but it's not um, unique to us or, or me. I have lots of things that we believe in and do that are unique to us, but um, that's not one of them. But it's so core and so essential. I know of no great leader that's not value-driven, no great leader that doesn't have value clarity. So, right. So, so in terms of what, what you guys do, What's like a typical task that's happened during this period uh, that has really, you know, tested your organization and, and, you know, was a challenge for you? Well, testing our organization has been trying to operate virtually. I mean, we do, we do, you know, I have a large coaching group. Um, they coach senior leaders across the world, but mostly in the U.S. Um, uh, we, we've not, we only have a handful of coaches that really like to coach virtually that, that, that have done this over a long period of time. And then of course, like everyone else, the first set of conversations when this all happened, people were distracted. They, they really wanted to just do catch up. They didn't really want to talk substantively about their organizations, about what they were doing. They, they were way, way too, uh, distracted by, uh, what could happen in about, uh, their own families and so forth. But as uh, now two months later, two and a half months later, um, people are not in a new normal. Uh, I, I, um, I, I don't believe that, but, but they are much more desirous of substantive conversation of, of doing things. They, they know we can only talk virtually on Zoom or whatever other medium we're using. And, um, and so there's a lot more appetite for that and that's starting to happen. So we're seeing, we had, a, we had our own challenge of how do we engage people? How long do we wait for people to recover from this so that they're not dis distracted? How quickly do we get into our advice and counsel? Do we just listen to people when they're upset? You know, we all, uh, obviously we, we care about people um, like like anybody else that's any good. And so we're more focused on them and their families first and then their organizational health first and the like. But then you have to get into real issues and, and real advice around what are best practices um, in this moment. And uh, and we're now seeing that, that that's occurring. But we had to learn how to do this on video. Um, and it's a strange medium. Um, it has a lot of uh, differences to face-to-face -face interaction. And, um, and it's not easy. And especially for somebody like me that for over 30 years has done only face-to-face -face conversations. Um, it's been hugely um, uncomfortable and strange and a, and a big stretch for me to do. Um, and I'm, I'm getting better at it every day. I still don't like it, by the way, um, but I'm getting better at it all the time. So, so when, they're, when everybody's finally, or you know, now that they're getting, you know, the CEOs and leaders are getting used to this, what are they? asking you for what what's what's your bread and butter advice that you're able to really help and substantially help some of these organizations and leaders well well listen i mean there's advice around how to create social connectivity inside their organizations whether that be social hours or or family hours or things of that nature so you know most senior leaders underestimate the need for social connectivity that people have to see each other face to face and engage each other off topic and off business issue um, and so there's some of that advice. There's advice around this thing we've already talked about, about the cadence of, of being in front of everybody and being visible. Um, there's, the, there's the whole set of advice around um, how, do you, how do you show appreciation and recognition without becoming um, a syrupy uh, in, in these kinds of times and moments. Um, there's advice around um, how to make decisions when we're not face-to-face -face 
and these virtual meetings um, take a lot of time. It's very difficult to see who's getting ready to speak, who, who's rolling their eyes at, a, at an idea. So decision making, we've been spending a lot of time trying to help leaders understand how to make decisions virtually in these kinds of moments. Um, and so there's a lot of things to talk about. Oh, well, what are metrics for decision making, you know, that, that, that you subscribe to, that you would advise people to, to consider? So, so listen, the biggest issue with decision making is um, who owns the decision? So, so many organizations get this entirely wrong where they have multiple people who own a decision, which means nobody owns a decision, nobody makes it or drives it, and the bureaucracy takes over. So every single decision has to have a primary owner who's responsible for making that decision. Now, we actually distinguish between two things, a maker and an owner. Think about a maker as that person is basically, they're required to eventually break the tie or make the decision. The owner drives the process. And so we distinguish between those two things. Um, and so when we get into decision-making, especially in this moment, it's, it's how do you build consensus virtually? So how do you get people who don't need a, a video call, but simply can check in with each other and say, weigh in on this. Here's the target position. This is what we're thinking, weigh in. And then they start to modify and change their decision until they have a loose consensus. Then they're ready to come back together in a, in a call and validate that, what, that consensus and really bring it to life and then talk about how to execute it. Most organizations don't operate that way. They don't think about having a distinctive process owner to drive decisions and drive consensus. They normally don't think about anyone who's really responsible for making that decision. They, don't, they aren't used to having people weigh in in multiple mediums in order to, to change the target. In fact, they're not even used to generating a target position so that people can respond to it. That's a mainstay of all good decision making. You need something to, to, to decide against. You need, you need something to push against in order to know what your own views are. Very few good decisions come from a zero. What's an example? Um, any example. If, if we decide, uh, you know, uh, how are we going to do this call together? Um, well, we're going to do it on Squadcast, right? Well, that allows me to say, well, why Squadcast? It gives me a, you know, you made a proposal. No reason for me not to do it that way. But it gives me the ability to push against it or ask the question or something. So everything needs a target, at least an initial position. Now, the question is, of course, decision-making-wise, where does that come from? Where does that target come from? Sometimes it can come from the expertise of a small group of people. Sometimes it can come through dialogue where the team just talks about the issue for a while, and then that decision-maker slash and or owner, sometimes they can be the same person, can generate that, that target position. So, um, you know, I've made this more complex than I should have. Um, because I'm trying to give you the, like the really the essence of this. But when we're talking about decision making, first question I ask is who who makes this decision? And when I get an answer that is uh, you know we've got these six people making a decision, then I know already we're we're in a bad spot that we're going to be dysfunctional in terms of this decision quality, and that we're going to have low quality decisions. So I push people to have a single owner. Our, our maker, I push people then to have somebody that drives the process so that we can start working consensus. We can get everybody to, to, to weigh in. We can get everybody's subscription. We then focus on the dissidents. So you can take people through a very simple process that enables organizations, large and small, to make much higher quality decisions. By the way, it's how we do it in our own houses, in our own homes, in our own families. You know, nobody, you don't come home and say, we're going to Hawaii on vacation. What you do is you float the idea of Hawaii to your family. And then you start asking them to weigh in. Like, what do you think about it? Why? And then eventually, you, everybody knows that you're the one that's paying for this, so you're going to make it. But at the same time, you're trying to build consensus. 
and one of your kids wants to go to North Carolina instead. And then you start focusing on all the cool things in Hawaii and you show them a video. And then you, you gain their subscription because they were the only dissident. And then finally at a family dinner on Sunday night, you say, hey, guess what? We've all decided Hawaii would be a great thing and everybody you know, is, is applauding. Well, that's working consensus, that's decision-making. The deal is you can do the same thing in any large or small organization around any critical decision. You don't have to do it around anything that doesn't matter, but that's how it works. I guess sometimes though, you know, it seems like there's two ways then that a decision can happen in an organization. You could have the, the owner of the decision or the maker of the decision have a lot of charisma and use that charisma to get consensus. Or, you know, there's like the Atul Gawande approach, his book, The Checklist Manifesto, about how to make decisions in a high stakes situation like the middle of a surgery, you know, where you have kind of a pre-planned checklist that helps uh, determine if something's a good decision or a bad decision. And the consensus then becomes around the checklist as opposed to the ch decision itself. And, and I wonder how you, you know, how, how do you, how, what's your take on that? Yeah, leadership really matters, doesn't it? And so there's no right way to do it. The art form is how do you work toward consensus? Do you, do you kind of push it hard? Do you, do you use some kind of pre-format to do it? There's no right answer. Um, but the deal is, has everyone been heard? Has everyone weighed in? Because I can tell you this, in the majority of organizations that make critical decisions, if not everyone's weighed in, they don't buy in and they don't execute the decision. So what was the point of making it at all? Right. And there's a lot of cultures out there, James, that I call hard yes and soft yes cultures. Hard yes cultures are when we make a decision, everyone's on that page and we, we take the flag right up to the top of the pole. But soft yes and soft no cultures are ones where when we decide, everybody goes, did we really decide? Do I really need to do that? You know, is that essential? Like, I think, I'm not sure we really agreed to that. And, and, and that's the same thing with no. And that's what happens as a result of leaders not actually asking everybody to weigh in and moving toward an actual conclusion, which happens a lot. So listen, um, there's lots to talk about in this, but, but leadership really matters and, and, and how you go about working toward consensus, that, that's exactly what I coach people about. But first I have to get them to a foundation of like, okay, so who owns this decision and then who's gonna drive this process and, and then who are the important constituents to, to get the way in? And then what do we do, how do we deal with the dissonance? And, and, but here's another example, James. In many cases, if you don't follow this kind of process, you can talk about a decision that we already have consensus with for multiple meetings or multiple weeks or months when it was just totally a waste of time. We could have quickly decided that we had an owner. That owner could have asked everybody to weigh in on, against a target, and everybody would have said, I love this. There's no issue with this. Well, we don't have to talk about it anymore. We, we, we've got a decision. We, can, we just have to talk about execution. I can't tell you how many meetings I'm in with senior leaders where they're talking about things they already reached consensus on. But because people like to be heard, they want to talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. And, and that's just a waste of time. It's not a good use of organizational time or energy. But so there's lots of issues in this decision-making stuff. But, but one of the things that I want to talk to you about, right, in terms of, is, is I'm not sure you understand how different um, people like me come to this whole leadership thing. Because even that description of decision-making that I just did is so different than what people teach or how people think about it. Because I come at this leadership thing behaviorally when most everybody else comes at this leadership thing psychologically or what I call individual differences oriented. And, and that is the difference between 
you know, why I've even agreed to be on these kinds of podcasts and yours in particular, because we have a lot of respect for you. Um, we, we, we follow you and we think you're great. So, you know, oh, we, you. We've, we've chosen to come out. Like I, I, I just don't, I mean, I haven't done podcasts. This is the first one I've ever done. And, really? and it's not because I'm shy or, or and you, you talk you talk to people in my firm and they will tell you I'm, I'm not a shy or or, uh, or um, introverted person. OK, I am very opinionated and I have lots of strong views about leadership. There's a lot of things I don't have views about, but leadership is one. Um, but why would we agree to do this? Because we want to change the conversation. Um, we, it's t- it, we think it's time that people started understanding leadership from a very different point of view. Um, so, so I'm happy. I want to talk about that with you because that's the real reason that I think what yeah, we look, know and how we know it is really powerful. So that's where I want to go. But I'm happy to go wherever you go. So I, I'm, you're my guy. No, but okay. I've been. I mean, I've been asking questions about you know what's okay. You know, given your your full range and perspective, and and it's a and it's a global perspective. Yeah. Uh, I've been querying that. But 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 tell me, where do you see your views as leadership? As like what? Well, let me ask this. In the past few months, where have you seen surprisingly good examples of leadership, either in the corporate world or the the the, the world the world itself or the political world or whatever? Listen, I think leadership it, it, listen, leadership really matters. You and I both know that 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 how we make decisions and how we engage each other and and what our cultures are like have huge influences on people, the quality of people's lives and 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 the consequences that we face. So there's very few people that don't understand. Maybe they underestimate it at any given moment, but but we know that leadership matters. The difference for me is that I don't find the locus of leadership in people. And that's why when people often say, well, we don't have a lot of great leaders right now, or we're, you know, we're not seeing great leadership. Well, that's because they have an old fashioned view that leadership resides in people. It's innate to people. Some people are leaders, some people aren't. And I, and I reject that view. Um, that, that view is archaic. It, 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 in fact, it's, and it's not well substantiated at all. And, and where leaders come from, where leadership comes from, it, it resides in actions, in decisions, in messages. It resides in the everyday behaviors that people engage in. And when, when you take and look at leadership from a standpoint of what are people doing, if leadership is about what you do, then I can show you lots of great leadership almost all the time. Now, we can always be critical of decisions in retrospect that didn't turn out the way we wanted and then say we had bad leadership. The question that I would have of those decisions is, would we have made the same ones if we had had all the same data and information? Did we follow a really solid process? Were, was everyone heard and did everyone's viewpoint get weighed? And, and then if we've made a bad decision, because there's a difference between decision and outcome, right? Then we had decent leadership, but we had a lousy outcome. And by the way, a lot of leaders get lucky too, and I'm hopefully one of them, where sometimes I have good outcomes and I didn't have good process. And I got lucky because the marketplace worked in my, in my favor. I mean, we recently came out with a, a digital leadership course. Right, from, called Meyer Leadership. Um, doc, it's in MeyerLeadership.com. We came. People ask me all the time, "How did you figure out how to come up with a digital course at the right moment?" It's like we didn't. We've been working on this thing for two years, and it just so happened COVID hit, and all of a sudden everybody's interested in digital leadership courses. I mean, so it wasn't a great decision-making process to come up with that outcome. We happen to be in the right spot at the right time, and, you know, it's having a lot of interest right now. Great. Super for us. But, but the deal is these people that believe that leaders are, are born, that, 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 you know, you have to be a certain kind of a person, 
listen, people who are, who are quiet, people who are, are shy, people who are tacit, people who are dynamic, people who are charismatic, they, they all have a choice. And the choice that they have is, do I choose to make people and situations better with my actions, my choices, my decisions? And when I choose to do that, then I'm leading. And if I do it a lot then, and my outcomes are good, then I'm somebody that people will ask to do that on purpose. They'll ask me to either fill a role or not fill a role. And when you, when you, when you think of leadership in terms of what people do instead, then you can find lots and lots of examples of great leadership. When you think of leadership in, as innate to people and that either the leaders were quality people, so therefore they made quality decisions or they didn't, then you, you, you basically look at leadership in a backwards way where you look at things like decisions and you judge them after the fact. And by the way, in a society as complex as ours, there's gonna be lots of decisions that after, the, after it all comes out, they were bad decisions. That doesn't mean those were bad leaders or that we didn't have leadership. I, I like that, that, that view that um, you know, a leader is committed to making choices that uh, make other people's lives better. So again, that removes the process from the outcomes and, and allows people to build trust, uh, with their team or with people outside their circle, uh, outside their team. It allows them to build trust with those. If you know that the process is good and that the intent is good, even if some outcomes weren't always good. I mean, a great example might be, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So there's a lot of debate about whether the new deal was good or bad, who knows, but his, you know, his first 100 days in office are very famous. They're called the first 100 days. And he, he, he stepped up, he provided optimism, uh, in his, in his inauguration speech. And he, he, you know, he signed into, into law within those first hundred days, you know, various new deal acts that created millions of jobs. Again, the outcome could be debated, but he, it seems like then he demonstrated leadership uh, according to what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, anybody can lead anytime they want. You're, you know, one of the things that I'm a big proponent of with, with a few organizations and a few foundations is, is to teach kids, especially high school level kids, how, how to lead on an everyday basis. Um, they have a friend that is having a hard time. They can lead by simply being comforting. They can lead by advocating for that kid. They can lead by simply listening and being a sounding, you know, a sounding board. They can lead simply by not allowing other, other children to pick on that or bully that kid. There's all kinds of choices. Now, the majority of us don't think of leadership that way, so we watch. And, and then people say, well, we must not be innate leaders. Anybody can lead any time. And when you empower people that way to say, anybody can make a situation or, or, or other people better. Now, your intentions don't mean that you have great outcomes all the time. You can make mistakes. You can, you can have good intentions and make things worse. I'm always amazed, I tell leaders this all the time, and that is no matter how bad the problem is, you can always make it a lot worse. And that is so true in my experience. But, but the object is to try to make it better. And, and so every, everybody has the ability to lead. And there's lots of people with the title of leaders, uh, leadership, and, and have the title of a, of a leader who don't do anything in terms of their choices or actions that actually produce good outcomes. And their intent is not to do that. It's really just to fill space. So I don't think it matters to title. I don't think it matters with authority. I think any of us can lead all the time. Now, what we've done over a really long period of time is we've studied leaders behaviorally. So we've looked at the best leaders, exceptional leaders. And, and here's a point that I really want to make strongly. No optimal organization, no optimal organization. Uh, or excuse me, no optimal organization, no optimal leader. 
Everybody is flawed, you, me, and everybody else. I've been in the most prestigious organizations in the US for a long time. And I was in General Electric for a long time. I was in Goldman Sachs for a long time, coaching leaders there. I've been in lots of wonderful places that have had this kind of uh, halo. And as good as they are, and by the way, they, they earned those reputations. Those were really, those two examples, great companies and great cultures when I was involved with them. Um, they had their flaws. There, there is no optimal organization. Every organization has flaws. And there is no leader that is without flaws. But some leaders are actually exceptional in certain areas of leadership. I can find leaders that make better decisions than everybody else based on proof, based on actual objective data. I can find coaches, athletic coaches, that are better at giving feedback than other athletic coaches, probably better than anyone. I can find inspirational leaders that really get people to, to go beyond what they think are, they're capable of consistently over and over again. I can, I can identify people that build deeper and more meaningful relationships more quickly than almost anybody else. I can find aspects or functions of leadership where people excel at them. And what we've done over a really long period of time, over 30 years, is, is try to engage these leaders, not by asking them who they are or why they do what they do or you know, even how they've learned what they've learned, but by asking one simple question, what do they do that other people don't do? And so how do they make decisions? How do they build those relationships? And what you find is that excellence exists almost every place. We know that there's excellence in athletic performance, there's excellence, excellence in intellectual performance, there's excellence in the way people dance, there's excellence in the way people um, do logistics. Excellence exists everywhere. Well, there's excellence in leadership too. And like excellence elsewhere, leadership has basic routines, basic behaviors that are connected to them. So while the psychological view of leadership is one that focuses on differences, and for a good reason, by the way, because people are massively different from one another, and while they're looking at how to adapt and flex to those differences, what we do is we take the take that says, how is it that, what, what's most common to, between people? How, how do the best leaders do what they do? What, what do they do that you and I don't do that we could emulate in a matter of minutes? and, and that, that are largely unknown. So you and I know some of, some of the ones that are self-evident. We know that the best leaders keep their word, that they show up in a crisis, that they admit mistakes, they show themselves to be human. Those are ones that, by the way, uh, 100 years ago, we didn't know those, but those are self-evident. But what are the ways that leaders make specific decisions and build relationships and give feedback and build team and make change in organizations? Are there routines? And the answer is excellence in anything has a set of basic routines and behaviors in them. And once you know them, you can teach them to other people and they can be articulated really quickly. And, and, then, and they have a face validity to them. Immediately, once you hear them, you go, that's right. And, and once I point them out, they're very obvious. So what's some routines that might not be so obvious until you point them out? Well, give me an area of leadership. Anything in particular? You want to talk about inspiration, for example? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm actually inspired by the fact that anybody can be a leader. So many people listening to this might not be the CEOs of their organizations, might be employees or self-employed or part-time or, you know, everybody's at different points in the hierarchy of right. society, but it's inspiring that everyone can be a leader. What's a routine for someone who's not being given superficial responsibility for, for something that they can step up and be 
more of a leader in their life and their circle and concentric circles around that. Okay, so 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 let me just back up for one second. I, I think people know they can be leaders. I think they've been de- they've been mystified by this notion of leaders that leadership is innate in people. L- listen, there's no more ubiquitous leadership act on the planet than being a parent, and and parenting is all about leadership. And we do it on an ongoing basis. We make choices all the time. We make choices to reward, to praise, to, to sanction. We make choices to introduce, expose, to create experiences. That, those are acts of leadership. And, and if we were a little more mindful of them and a little more value-based around them, we'd probably be better parents. And there's nobody, again, that's too good a parent or that's the optimal parent. We can all be better. And, and even if we do the right things, it doesn't guarantee the right outcomes. But, but parenting is a leadership act. And, and so that should prove to anyone, if you just hear it out loud, that, that anyone can lead it all the, t- and, uh, all the time if you so choose. Uh, and I don't mean every waking moment, but there's lots of choices that we face that, that are leadership acts. And, and so, um, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm uh, like still, 30 years later, I'm still interested in this idea of inspiration and, and how wrong everybody gets the whole idea of how to inspire other people. And, and, and I was blind to it, too, because I, I, was, I was educated in the traditional sense. <clears throat> People are really different, so let's focus on those differences. People are motivated by very different things. Jay, you're, you're, you know, your engineer is motivated by very different things than you are, James, and, and that I am, right? And so you, know, you, you, know, uh, you need a swift kick in the butt. You need high challenge, high bar, high expectation, and that motivates you to perform. Whereas somebody else that we know, um, in fact, you give them a high challenge, a little fiery rhetoric, and it demotivates them. They, they want to give up really fast. And somebody else that we know needs a lot of praise, recognition, approval. And, uh, and you give it to them, and they want to perform at a higher level. And uh, somebody else, they, they wear a force field against that same praise and recognition. It bounces off of them. It seems not to matter to them at all. They, they do things for some other reason. So people are really different. And, uh, and we learned that there's, there's literally several dozen things that can motivate people from responsibility and autonomy to empowerment to um, if, you, if you subscribe to, to Daniel Pink and, 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 and his work on drive, which is you know, master, being masterful and, and learning the idea of purpose, uh, the idea of autonomy. Um, and by the way, those are all right. I'm not arguing against any of them. Um, I think that makes sense. People are motivated by those things. Some people are motivated by incentives. We're all, you know, incentives can take many different forms, compensation, time, energy, uh, and, and affection can be an incentive. Um, so, some people are very coin-operated, in, in my words. You know, they, they're really focused on the compensation piece, the performance incentive piece, and everything drives that. Other people, not so much. Um, so we learn that people are hugely different. And so naturally, we try to attend to those differences. And unless we're around children for a really long time or a spouse for a long time, we, it's, first of all, it's hard to figure out what exactly uh, is, is the primary motivator. Sometimes motivations go in and out, uh, what inspires people. And, and by the way, I should say, the difference between inspiration and motivation is, is not that big. Um, motivation is anything I do to compel an action. Um, inspiration is how do I light the fire so you want to be better in general? How do you want to excel or achieve? Almost everything motivational has some degree right, um, uh, of, of action-oriented, um, but almost anything inspirational is motivational. So I don't bandy the two terms about a lot of people want to debate those. Um, but, but here's the deal. So, so what happens is 
we, we start, we, we inherit a team of people that we lead or our family, whatever else, and we start sizing people up and we try to adapt and flex to the differences of what really motivates and inspires them. So we try to give some, somebody praise and other people responsibility, some person a lot more uh, investment in their, in their learning and their mastery, other people we try to, to, to raise the higher purpose of things. And what we realize is not a simple thing to do. In fluid conversation, in the fluid life that we live, in all the different complexities, you'd have to be a tremendously facile person to be able to size every situation and every person up all the time and give them what they need. And so in self-defense, we generally, we know this, not my data, we know that what people do is they generally try to motivate people in whatever motivates them. If you're somebody that needs a lot of praise, you give people a lot of praise. If you're somebody that really values autonomy, you generally give people autonomy. That's how you motivate them. So in self-defense, you kind of throw up your hands and give up. So it seems like one important quality then is the ability to be aware of the needs of the other people and, and determine what those needs are. Yeah, well, in, in, in that frame it is. But how about if I told you there's a universal of inspiration motivation that, that motivates everybody all the time? And how about if I told you that if you got good at that thing, it, it doesn't mean you should stop adapting and flexing and trying to, to, be, to, to focus on the differences between people. I don't ever want people to stop doing that. If I'm somebody that needs praise, I want you to give me some more praise, right? I need you to size me up. I need you to be aware. But, but how about if I told you there's actually a universal, a timeless universal of all motivation and inspiration? And what I can't understand is why nobody else has uncovered it or found it. And, and I learned about it over 30 years ago. Okay. And what's even cooler about it is it has, it has dozens of expressions that we can, we can get masterful at, which is what it turns out to be. So, so I want to tell you a story in order so that you'll, because I'm only going to have a chance to tell you one or two behaviors around it um, in our time. So, so rather than you go, well, I want to talk to you again, or even more, or, you know, show me the book or whatever, we're not writing the book. Um, uh, in the process, I'd rather give you the frame so you can figure out all the rest of the stuff that we've learned, okay? So, so I want to tell you a golf story. So, you, you know, you, sure. you, you said I played golf in college and I was happy to do so. It wasn't, wasn't as good as I thought I was, but I still had a lot of fun doing it. And, and I learned to compete and, and I still enjoy the game and so forth. But, and so I've been a fan of golf and I work with some professional golfers and a lot of college kids and some teams. And I'm proud to do so and I do so for fun just as a hobby. And, and, but, but I'm a big fan of professional golf. And, <clears throat> and I want to tell you a story that, that maybe you know, maybe you don't, but you know the guy, and his name is Tiger Woods. And, and in 2005, he was at the height of his prowess. I mean, he could do things with a golf club and on a golf course that no one else had ever seen anyone do, um, including some of the greats. And so during that time period, way before the nine iron went through his windshield and his life fell apart, way before all the scandal and everything else, this was the guy at, at the very zenith of his, his skillfulness on the golf course. He's playing at Augusta in the Masters Golf Tournament, you know, one of the majors of all golf. He's in the fourth round. He's leading by a shot. Okay? He's in contention then to win this tournament. He's on the 16th hole, par three over water. He puts his ball short of the green right against the collar of the rough. And if you play golf, which you know, it's one of the hardest golf shots there are because the ball sits where it's right behind the ball is high grass and it's sitting on short fringe. So the only way to get your club to it is to come through the high grass, which means it's very difficult to put spin or even make contact with the ball. And it's sitting right on that collar. 
And Tiger Woods and his caddy are looking at this shot and they're thinking about how hard it is. If you watch this on YouTube and you can see it on YouTube, the broadcaster, I believe it's Lanny Watkins, says like this is an impossible shot and it's very dangerous because if he tries to get it close, it probably goes off the green into one of the bunkers there and he loses his lead. And so Tiger Woods and his caddy pick out a spot the size of a dime, 20 feet away. And he says, if I can hit that with spin on it, I can get it close. And it turns out, as Caddy later admits, he hits exactly that spot, the exact dime spot that they had picked. He hits, and he does what only Tiger Woods can do. He can put spin on that ball off of that collar rough shot. And the ball hits that dime and checks into the hillside, and it starts to trickle back to the cup. And 5,000 people standing around that amphitheater of that green can all see what might happen. And so they start to go wild. They start to clap and stamp and, and, and jump up and down and scream and holler and yell. And that ball gets within a foot of the cup and it, the din is even higher. And then the ball rests itself on the edge of the cup. The Nike logo is not perfectly, but almost perfectly inframed on camera. I'm not even sure what that was worth. Okay? And for 2.2 seconds, that ball sits on the edge of the cup. And finally, it makes the final revolution and drops into the cup for a two or a birdie. He's now got a two-shot lead, and he goes on and wins the golf tournament. Of anybody that studies or, or is an aficionado of golf, it's in their top competitive golf shots. For me, it's the best shot I've ever seen. For a lot of people, it's in their top two or three or five, whatever it is. Okay? Tiger Woods, by the way, says, he said himself afterwards, he could hit that shot another 100 times, and he couldn't put it close, much less in the cup, in front of 38 million people on television and in the, the contention to win the Masters golf tournament. Now, the reason I tell you this story is because there's a sports writer, a famous sports writer. I won't mention his name. He's standing on the side of the green. He's been to every major sporting event in the history that you can think of. Fenway and Yankee Stadium and Kentucky Derby and Grand Prix and Indy 500. And, so, and he says when that ball got close to the edge of the cup, he had never heard anything like it because of the amphitheater of those 5,000 people. But he said when that ball got to the edge of the club, People's enthusiasm for that shot was so large and so, so loud that, and they were jumping up and down and they were so rambunctious, he said that everything was moving. He said he could feel the vibration all the way up to his thighs. And he wrote the next day in a very prestigious uh, newspaper, um, that ball made the final revolution for one reason and one reason alone, because everybody wanted it to go in. Not because they thought they could make it go in, there was no collusion. But because of their enthusiasm for the shot, that ball had no choice but to make that final revolution. He said he could feel the vibration. It was like an earthquake. Everything was moving. The ball could not have sat there. Can I tell you, we've studied several thousand exceptional leaders, what we call admired leaders, and they all have the same view. And their view is, the, the, the universal of all inspiration is, Every single person on the planet, independent of culture, independent of age, generation, and experience, we all want the people we respect, we admire, and that we look up to wanting our ball to go in. We all want them rooting for us, clapping for us, and saying and proving to us that they want us to succeed while holding us accountable, while having difficult messages, while the, doing the other functions of leadership. So that when we have somebody that we respect, who is clapping for us and would do anything for us to, for us to succeed, we are inspired in a way that nothing else does that. And that's the universal. But here's the kicker. You can't just tell somebody that you're rooting for them. You have to prove it behaviorally. And we've been able to find 40-some behaviors 
of inspirational fanness. I call it fanness. What does it mean to show your fanness? And so how do the best leaders prove their fanness to people on an ongoing basis? By the way, I am absolutely sure, James, you do some of these things without knowing them. Most of us do. The key is to do them all the time. But here's the deal. The key is to do them not just when the kids bring home good grades, when the relationship in the marriage is, is wonderful, when the team is performing at the highest level, when sales are up. The deal is to be a fan all the time, to prove to everyone that you lead directly, including your leader, if you have a great relationship with them, that you're rooting for them and wanting them to succeed. And so we've been able to focus on, and I coach people around, what are the behaviors of fanness? It's not the only thing I coach people on, of course. In many cases, it doesn't even come up because that's not their issue. But that changes the very frame of what it means to inspire. And so I want people to individually um, size people up and to focus on the differences that you need and that I need differently. And we are different. You need different things than I need. And I want people to adapt, but I want them to master being a great fan. And when you master great fanness, you're more inspiring to everybody around you all the time. And people will move towards you in a different way as a leader. Now, inspiration is only one slice of leadership. It doesn't make you make great decisions. It doesn't enable you to hold people accountable. It doesn't mean that you can build a great culture or a great team. But it's such an important piece of leadership, and it's one that most of us really are bad at. I mean, it's one that like re, most of us really suck at this inspiration thing. We're not nearly as inspirational as we should be or could be or that people want us to be. So so it's interesting because in the, the Tiger Woods examples is beautiful because uh, on the one hand, part of what made him successful there was obviously his excellence, his, his, his work ethic, his skill, his talent, all of those things. But then he was such a he did have this symbiotic relationship with the fans ever since he first made his appearance in the early nineties or whenever it was, you know, and I'm sure that gave him energy and propelled him just as it propelled the fans. So what are some of these behaviors of demonstrating your, your fanness to the, the people around you? Well, now you know why I agreed to come on the podcast, but you don't think I'm going to give them to you, do you? I do think you're going to give them to me. I'll, I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you some sampling. I'm going to. I'm going to give you some sampling, right? Kind of stuff. So, so, um, so. Listen. Let, let's take a couple of, of simple examples. Okay. Um, you have people in your life who, who who sometimes not just do good things, but they do great things. I mean, fabulous things, right? They 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 sell something. They should. You know, they reach a sales goal they shouldn't normally reach. They they they've they've been at the recital and they and they nail it. Um, they, they, they graduate from some spectacular, um, prestigious school. They, they, they do something great, okay? Um, what, what happens for most leaders and in most, le most organizations and teams and families? We, we celebrate that, that event, that, that outcome, and, and then we go on our, with our lives. But what would a fan do? What would somebody who's a leader, who, who, who's a leader, who chooses to treat themselves as a leader and, and who believes that they're a big fan, what would they do? And what we find is that the best leaders actually extend that great news in time. They actually keep it alive. They document it. They take a photo of it. They put it on a T-shirt. They, they make a screensaver of it. They, they name a sandwich after it temporarily. Uh, they, they put it on the refrigerator uh, for a while. They drink an inch of scotch for every, every couple of weeks, a bottle of wine once a month. They keep it alive, not forever, but they extend it in time longer 
because it's great news than would normally done. Who would do that for you and, and keep that great news alive longer, but that's somebody who roots for you, somebody that is your fan and wants you to feel that level of success for longer than perhaps would be normal. Only a fan would. And so there's a classic example of being a fan. And all of us can learn to do that better. Anytime we see great news in our families, in our teams, with our friends, we have the choice as to whether we try to keep it alive for a little longer than it would normally be kept alive. Not inappropriately so. I've seen people name temporarily a conference room after somebody that generated a great idea that changed an organization. I've seen people name things. I've seen people do all kinds of different things to extend things in time. One of the most powerful things you can do as a parent, for example, is to write your child a note of what you're experiencing while they're going through that wonderful accolade experience. And what you'll find is those kids will read that note over and over again. There's a soccer coach from the University of North Carolina. His name is Anson Dorrance. He's one of the winningest coaches in the NCAA history. He would write all his seniors every year uh, a letter about all their accomplishments and all the wonderful things they had achieved and so forth and so on. Some of his players went on to great stardom um, and some of them are well known. You know Mia Hamm and other people. In many cases, um, when I've been able to talk to some of those players, they don't have those letters anymore because they fell apart from them being read over and over and over again over multiple years. That's what it really means to people when you extend great news and time. So that's a classic example. How about if I told you that you know there's 30 plus more of those that you and I can do and we can just simply focus on and be better at all the time to show fairness. Now that's a good news one. Let's talk about a different one. Can we do that? Yeah. I want to know all 30, but... All right. Yeah, of course. So does everybody else. That's why we created the digital course. Um, hey, let me tell you this, though. Can, let me ask you this question. Can you be a better fan? And can you learn how to extend great news in time? Is that something you could choose to do today and start committing yourself to it? I think you could. Yeah. Right. So these are not things that are hard to do. I, I actually am a fanboy. Yeah, I'll bet you are. And, and that's probably one of the reasons you're, you're inspiring to other people. But, but here's a particular behavior to show your fanness, okay? So, so let's talk about this idea of praise, because I think praise is such a fascinating um, example. So, some people really need praise, uh, young kids for sure, but, but even as adults, we, we, you know, we, when we do something excellent, we expect somebody else to say, great job. And, and, and other people seem like, you know, in the Einstein, Einstein one said, um, I can't wait for the praise to get over so I can get back to my work. Some people just think it's just an intrusion. They don't need it. It doesn't make them better. They don't have to act on it. I'm not sure that's insecurity, whatever else it is. But we know that there are some people that recognition, approval, praise means a lot to, and other people not so much, right? Um, when you study the best leaders on the planet, by the way, people that are able to produce tremendous results as well as followership at the same time, and those are the best leaders, people that can do both of those things. What you find is if there's a criticism that their own team has or people can make about them is they generally are praise stingy. Because if you're somebody that can drive results, you generally hold very high standards. I mean, hugely high standards. And so in the process of holding those high standards, um, you're, you're able to uh, you know, basically say excellent only when you see excellence. Like it isn't something that you would, ban not a term you'd bandy about. So what happens is people who have very high standards don't offer as much praise, generally speaking, as other people want from them. And, and as a result, they get known as praise stingy. And, and these are some of the best leaders on the planet. 
But when we study them, they are prey stingy, but they do something else that all of us could learn to do. And that is they've come to learn that it's third-party compliments and praise that carries all the weight. So when I see excellence someplace else, and I'm a fabulous leader, and I'm not, I'm not one, by the way, but I try at this, I immediately tell somebody else. I tell a peer, I tell a friend, I tell somebody else that you know. And like a time-released vitamin, at some point it's going to go off and it's going to be shared back to you. It's going to be said, you know, I, I was talking to James and he heard you do a presentation and he was amazed at how cogent and articulate you were. Wow, I don't know what you did in that presentation, but he was wowed. And you go, really? And what you learn in that third-party praise is, number one, I made you look good in front of somebody else. That's a plus. Wonderful. Number two, though, there's no but, right? Because when, when I'm actually going through that same presentation and giving you feedback and I tell you it was a great job, I can always make something better. And so all good leaders say, you know, you try this, don't do that. You know, there's always, there's no such thing as perfect. You know, good enough is never good enough. So I can always be it. But, but when you're offering in a third party, there's never a but. It's just positive. But here's the reason that third-party compliments and praise carry all the weight. If I didn't really believe it, would I tell somebody else? The level of sincerity the third-party praise is off the roof. And so when I hear that you praise me in front of somebody else or compliment me in front of somebody else, I immediately believe, and I should, by the way, that you deeply believe that, that there's no, no deception, no ingratiation, there's, there's no outcome you're trying to achieve. And the best leaders train themselves to do third-party praise and compliment. And it's easy to do because what I've been able to do is coach people. This is so fascinating. Well, that's just number two. I haven't even gotten to number five or six or 20 or 30, okay? Uh, and, and, I, and I didn't pick these because of the more, you know, the more powerful ones. There's so many ways of showing fanness. And if you simply ask, what would a fan do? What a fan would do is offer third-party praise as often as they possibly could because it's easier to do. I don't want you not to offer first-party praise, by the way. Somebody does something wonderful. Please tell them. But if you're somebody that for whatever reason doesn't have the moment to tell them or you, know, you feel as if that's a weakness or you, know, you hold such high standards, but anytime you see something good, tell a third party. And tell your leader's peer, tell your, your wife's in-laws, tell your husband's friends, tell your kids' closest allies and friends, teachers, when they're not present. Third-party praise carries all the weight, and fans and people that believe in fanness do it a lot. They're addicted to it. And it proves that you're rooting for people. And it's something you and I can learn to do tomorrow. Now, if we do it as a technique, just to have an effect, it, it, it won't have any impact. But if we do it consistently as a routine of our leadership, becomes part of our style over time, you're more inspirational to everybody around you because they can feel your fanness. How cool is that? That's what's so cool about studying leaders and coaching leaders is to give them those level of epiphanies. And then they immediately realize, I haven't been as big a fan of these people as I want, and I need to prove it in different ways. And so I'll have leaders say to me, okay, I like that one, but give me one that's even, that I can do that's even easier than that. It's one that I can master like, you know, quickly. And, and, and I'll give another one and another one, another one, until we start working on these things, until it becomes part of their style. And then what they find is people, they basically interpret them and engage them very differently. Because when you're around somebody that's your fan, it changes the game. So if I was ever gonna write something, I'd write the question, are you my fan? And how do, how do you prove it? Are you, do you show me that you're my fan? Well, I am now because it's just this whole concept of, uh, you know, 
leadership equating with being a fan, it kind of underlines so many things that you've been saying. Like even in the beginning, when I asked you about debates and you said, you know, describe things with vividness with the third party compliments, it should be done with vividness. Like, oh, I saw someone's presentation. I don't just say it was great. I should say it vividly. Like I got there, I was late. Uh, he did this. I noticed he was doing this. It, Wonderful. Yeah. And, and, and then, you know, there was another thing, there was another thing you said, um, oh, just about, you know, what's, what's my values. Well, the way you notice and observe and compliment someone is also a way uh, your, your, your values are going to piggyback on those compliments. So your values are going to become without you saying, you know, I believe in integrity. You could say, you know, I really like this presentation because he was vulnerable and said something that was really surprising. He would admit on stage and then boom, my values are expressed in my compliment of the other person. So it, all these things come together. They do. And they're all behavioral. That's the difference. You don't have to understand people deeply. You simply have to move in, in a way that behaviorally that justifies and reinforces the kinds of things that you stand for as a leader. It's a wonderful way of doing leadership. Well, I wish I, I wish I had started off minute one asking you to tell me the 40 <laughs> behaviors of fanness. Maybe you wouldn't have told me and I, <laughs> we, you had a lot of other great stories that I wanted to hear, but how do I, um, okay, I want, I'm going to take your course. What's the, how, how do I get to it? Well, I, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> Um, and, li and listen, wh why would we bring a course out? I mean, so something else you need to understand is there's a reason that I haven't written things and I don't let other people in our firm write things. We don't get quoted. We stay in the background, not in the foreground. We believe leaders um, are, are people that, that have influence and that, and, that in, and that shape and make people in situations better. But, but I'm not about profiling. Um, I'm not about putting myself out front. Uh, I'm about the most unknown, um, well-known uh, uh, advisor there is. Um, uh, people in industry know me a lot. Um, my reputation is intact, but I, I, I don't sell you know DVDs and I brought written books and I'm not out there uh, chumping, you know, thumping my chest. And there's a reason I don't believe that's what great leadership is. It's not that I, I don't have an ego or I, I don't have vanity, um, but, but we've tried to exemplify this. And so the coolest part, I think, of an, our entire leadership course is you're gonna see all kinds of people if you go into it that will show you all kinds of behaviors and we don't name anybody. We have clients, we have some of our own team, we have other people, and there's no names. My name, nobody's name is in there because it's not about us. And, and, and I really think that's so, such an important part. It's not about us. And great leaders, I think it was Bob Dylan that said, when you're on the top, you're really on the bottom. You don't have to be a servant leader, but, but it can't be about you. Because when it becomes about you, you've lost the ability to lead. And so we try to exemplify that. But now that you've asked, we, we put together 10 modules of leadership with, with 10 behaviors in the, each one of them, of which inspiration is one module. We've only got the 10, 10 of the more important behaviors in them, but I gave you just two of them, although you can get a lot more detail in them about those two. And all the videos that display them and all the outlines you can do in less than 10 minutes. And the, the course is called Admired Leadership, and you simply go to admiredleadership.com, and, uh, and it's right there for you. Um, there's a cool landing page with a bunch of foundational videos that we want people to watch, which is this idea of leaders aren't born, uh, they're made, and you know the idea of the difference between technique and routine and how to what it really means to be authentic. Because authenticity is such an under, misunderstood idea. 
um, in our culture. Well, what does it mean to be authentic in your in your view? And I know, um, you know, I, I really uh, thank you for, for for spending the time. We've been oh, talking for a while, but but I love talking about this stuff. You know, what 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 authenticity is such a, a catchphrase lately? Yeah, well, authenticity is what you do, and it's what you do the most consistently. It's nothing short of that. In other words, it's not doesn't matter what's in your heart and your head. Um, it matters to you, but it doesn't matter to anybody else. What matters to them is what you do. I cannot tell you, James, how many leaders I've dealt with who believe themselves to be compassionate but do not act compassionately and are not known compassionately by anybody but themselves. Now, their view is they're being authentic. I believe that I'm compassionate, and they try to act in, in a certain way. But, but you are what you do, and whatever you do the most consistently, that's who you are to people and to everyone else that comes to know you. And so authenticity resides actually in the behavior itself. So I will oftentimes teach people certain behaviors that the best leaders engage in, and they will say, well, that's not me. And I'll go, well, it's not you yet. And they'll say, well, that's not authentic to me. And I go, it's not authentic to you because you don't do it. But as soon as you do it with some level of frequency, that is the authentic you. And you can change that anytime you want, but it's about consistency in what you do. And this idea that authenticity is what's in your heart or what's in your intention, or what's in your thoughts or your feelings is total rubbish because it has nothing to do with how other people interpret you. And so authenticity is in, in your consistently consistency of what you do and that's how people know you. And your authentic self is, if you want me to take a snapshot, it's how you behave stylistically, how you present yourself and what you do on an everyday basis. That's who you authentically are. You want to change that? Change your behaviors. You want to really change that? Change your behaviors consistently so that you become consistently doing something else, then you become that thing. Now, I will tell you this, people are reluctant to let you change quickly. They don't believe you when you start a brand new action or behavior. First thing that you'll do when you try to show some people how to, you know, when you start giving third-party compliments, James, people are going to go, did you have somebody new on your podcast? You go to workshop or something? Did you know where? Like that's not who you are. Well, it's not who you are because it's not your most common or consistent behavior. But when you keep it up, irrespective of what they say or what outcomes, you keep it up because it's what you believe in. You want to be the kind of person that offers third-party praise. You want to be the kind of person that is a great fan. Then people will then accept that that is your authentic you because that's what they see the most often. That's what authenticity is. And we have it so wrong in our culture that we believe authenticity is really about inside people. And again, it's one of those things that it, they put the locus in the wrong spot. Not only is leadership in the wrong spot when we talk about it being made, but the authenticity is put inside innately inside people. It has nothing to do with who you think you are. Nobody cares who you think you are. They only care about what you do and how you act toward them. So, so. Randall, uh, it's admiredleadership.com. That's where I can find your course. Yep. Yep. I'm taking the course. I hope you will. And then I might have questions for you after the course because I'm going to take it. <laughs> you bet you will. Excellent. I can't wait for you to. And, uh, and I hope you learn. But, and by, by the way, now that you've had a little taste of fanness, spend all your time first in that spot. Just go through all the behaviors of fanness. You'll hear the Tiger Woods story again, um, but you'll, you'll learn uh, those two behaviors and eight more. And then go through the rest of the, there's a module on decision-making, there's a module on relationships that will blow your mind. There, maybe the best module is on making people better through feedback because 
we, we know through our coaching process that it has the biggest impact on leaders. People just don't know how to give uh, feedback to people. They don't know how to make them, they don't know how to offer criticism in a way that's productive that gets people to change. We have a module on change and a module on teams, module on managing time, which everybody likes. So you're gonna get a lot of value at I hope. And if you don't, then you'll call me and, and I wanna hear about it. Yeah, no, no, I'm very interested in the in the feedback one as well, because I think, you know, being a writer, a podcaster, and and many other things, constructive criticism I've seen from from every angle, whether it's me delivering it or not, or other people delivering it to me or not, and uh, it's, that's also an issue I've I've thought about quite a bit because, you know, that that that's an important tool in your in your toolbox. No, oh, no question. It's one of the one of the most important ones. Yeah, and and we've identified um, we're going to display ten timeless universal aspects. Listen, what you, what you say to people, very contextual. When you say it, well, there's a little bit to that, but mostly that's very contextual too. But how you deliver feedback and criticism, there are universal routines that all the best leaders employ um, that you and I can learn, and they're all right there. Um, there's 10 of them. Now, we've identified like 19, but we put the 10 best ones in that, in that course. And, um, and they're going to, I mean, any one of them could change your whole trajectory of how you give feedback, all 10 of them together are just, you know, if you really try to master them, they're hugely powerful. Well, I'm going to take the course and then hopefully <laughs> maybe you could come back on again because I'll have specific questions. Without revealing all the innards of the course, I know I'm going to have questions. Okay. Well, wonderful. So, um, you know, Randall Stutman, uh, thank you again for the time. I know you're extremely busy and, and have, you know, a lot of people who, who, depend on your advice and skills and so on. I really appreciate you coming on and thanks again, admiredleadership.com. I'm going there right now. I'm going to take the course and thanks again for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Love talking about this stuff and really a big fan of yours. And so keep it up, try to find the, the unknowns like me and, uh, and, and keep up all the good ideas and um, good luck to you in the future too. Thank you. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.